Welcome back to our series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' famous body of teaching. Um, and today we're going back a few verses uh, from where we've been the last few weeks to zoom in on a verse that's been in the background for quite some time in our uh, in our messages on the Sermon on the Mount. But we haven't had time to zoom right into it yet. So that's what we're doing today. And the verse is found in Matthew chapter six, verse 24. I'll read it to you. This is what Jesus says. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Now, a month or so ago, uh, we looked at Jesus' teachings and instructions about storing up treasures in heaven, not on earth. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, just a few verses back, from our verse today, Jesus makes the point that one reason uh, for us staring up, storing up treasures in heaven, not on earth, is that treasures on earth, like money and possessions, for example, are incredibly vulnerable. Uh, he, he points out that moths and thieves uh, can take them away. And I suppose a number of other things can, too. Then for the last few weeks, we've uh, spent our time looking at the subject uh, specifically of worry. And last week, Jonathan pointed out that the things we are most devoted to tend to be the things that we worry about the most. Now, um, what this means is that while God provides the things we need, is if we are overly obsessed by clothes, food, drink, again, we could link those to earthly treasures, money, which is what we'll be talking about today. If we get overly obsessed by them, whatever God provides for us, well, we're still going to inevitably worry because that's where our devotions uh, will lie. And so right between these two uh, bits of teaching is this verse we see today, um, which focuses in on this topic, I'm sure, as, as I've already mentioned, kind of joins and ties these two uh, passages together. And it really focuses in on uh, the heart of the matter, I suppose, uh, when it comes to earthly treasures, money. And I'd like to spend our time today uh, looking at this topic, but not necessarily focusing on money, but really, I suppose, focusing away from money. I want to redirect our attention on a much better source of our affections, our attention and our devotion. And that's to uh, God himself. And so that's what we're going to be uh, looking at today. I've just got three uh, simple points that I'd like to bring uh, out of this, this verse. And the first is this. It's the first thing that Jesus says is no one can serve two masters. Let's remember um, what the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is all about, shall we? This whole teaching is laying out the manifesto for God's kingdom. God's the king. And Jesus on that hillside in Judea all those years ago is welcoming these crowds to him and he's calling them to come into the kingdom. He's uh, he's welcoming them in. He's saying, look, this kingdom's for you. And he's saying, look, coming into the kingdom means pledging your allegiance to God as your king. What they probably didn't know then was he meant to himself, to himself as the son of God, as their king and reordering their lives accordingly. And that's what we've seen in the sermon up to now. And his words offer us the same welcome today. Are you fed up of living for yourself? Are you fed up of being disappointed and let down by those who you thought you could trust, but, but you couldn't in the end? Are you looking for genuine life change, a completely different way to live? Well, Jesus would say to you, 
just as he did to those people years and years ago. He'd say, I've got what you're looking for. Come in, come into my kingdom. It's open to you. And you come into the kingdom of God by following Jesus and giving your life to Jesus. But how do you do it? What's the remain requirement of coming into the kingdom of God? Well, the clue, I think, is in the name itself. This is a kingdom. Jesus is the king. You can't serve two kings. You could be kind of uh, on amicable terms with two kings. You could kind of appreciate the merits of two different kingdoms. But your allegiance must decisively lie with one of them and one alone. And there's lots about this that strikes against the modern mindset. We as a culture generally hate commitment. It's a feature of the 21st century Western world. We hate putting our lives in other people's hands. We hate other people making our decisions for us. I could talk at length about uh, the pros and cons of this kind of uh, response to commitment. But I don't have time to, for, for that. So all I'm going to simply say is this, that the Bible consistently paints God as a king of the type I've just been saying, one who demands commitment and allegiance to him and to him alone. I want to be clear. I'm not saying that God is like a human king in weakness or fallibility. I'm definitely not saying he's like a human king in, in corrupt ability. No, not at all. He's not like a human king in uh, aloofness either. Uh, God, uh, Jesus clarifies this in the Sermon on the Mount. As he says, come into the kingdom. He immediately says, well, but know this, the king is a father. He's not a king far away. He's a king who comes close, who, who, who cares for us, who cares for his subjects, even calls us his children. So in all those ways, he's not like a human king, but he is like a human king in that he asks for nothing short of undivided loyalty and allegiance. It might strike against our cultural preferences, but that's how the Bible paints it. You want to be in this kingdom? You want to be in God's kingdom? Well, it means bowing to him as king. And as you do that, it means you're rejecting all other kings, queens, masters, idols, overriding commitments, priorities, call them what you will. One of the stories in the Bible, I think, that spells this out most clearly is found in 1 Kings chapter 18 in the, in the Old Testament. And at that time, Israel, uh, they were quite literally the people of God, the people of Yahweh. Uh, but in this occasion, they're kind of uh, sitting between two stools, really. They, they're kind of fond of God. Uh, they have this traditional commitment to him and there are benefits of worshipping God, yet they're also quite enamoured by this new deity, this deity called Baal, that uh, some of their neighbor neighbours uh, seem to follow and worship. Uh, and so what happens is in verse 21 of 1 Kings 18, Elijah, who's a prophet of Yahweh, a prophet of God, uh, he stands on a mountain a bit like Jesus does uh, in our passage in the Sermon on the Mount. And he calls out to the Israelites this. This is what he says. He, he shouts out, how much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. I guess that not many of you attempted to follow the ancient Canaanite deity Baal as you're listening to this. But we have all sorts of other Baals in our culture and in our lives. 
And they're trying to tell us the same thing, that we can share our allegiances. And for us, Elijah's challenge would come loud and clear today. If the Lord is God, if Jesus is God, follow him. If something else is God, if something else is better, we'll follow them. But you can't do both. Jesus puts it like this. No one can serve two masters. So firstly, Jesus lays out this general point. This is a kingdom. There is a king. It's him alone or it's him not at all. And so this challenge, it challenges us to reject all other kings. But then he goes into highlight one specific competitor to his throne. And as we've seen, that is money. And the second thing we see then is that money is often God's main competitor in our lives. Again, this isn't unique uh, to this part of the Bible. This is something that is taught over and over again throughout Scripture. And money is often presented in this way as the main competitor that there could be for our loyalties. Now, I just need to uh, be, be clear here about what I mean. Uh, by money, Jesus is not just talking about physical currency. Um, he's also including the stuff that you could buy with that physical currency. So by money, I'm kind of talking about uh, money and possessions, I guess, here. The earthly treasures that he talked about a little earlier in the sermon. And that's how I'll be referring to it as we go along. And so these things, these earthly treasures, these money and possessions, they're not just presented uh, by Jesus as things we might fill our lives with or maybe things we might use from time to time. They're presented as competing kings, competing masters, intent on claiming our loyalty and getting us to bow the knee to them, forsaking all others in the process. But why pick on this particular element of life then? Why, why does Jesus single out money? There are all sorts of other masters or kings or idols uh, that, we, that he could talk about. What is it about money that's particularly dangerous? I think one of the things that we could say is that King money leads us in completely the opposite direction to King Jesus. He has completely the opposite set of uh, values um, to, to the one who rules the kingdom of God. If we follow him, I suppose we could say our life will go in completely the opposite direction. They have opposing agendas, these kingdoms. As Jesus says in today's verse, any other master will ultimately lead you away from God. But it seems that money does that most obviously and perhaps even most dramatically. Let's think about it for a second. Let's think about King Jesus and King Money then. What are their goals for our life, lives? What do they want for their subjects? Well, God, King Jesus, he wants us to firstly depend on him for our joy, doesn't he? He wants us to depend on him for our uh, security and for our satisfaction and for our identity and for our purpose. Well, what about King Money? What does King Money want to do? Well, actually, King Money wants us to do the same, but for him, which is the opposite. He wants us to depend on money for our joy, for our satisfaction, for our security, for our identity, for our purpose. Think of the insurance uh, advert that tries to convince you that if you lose your money or your stuff, you've lost everything. Think of the brand name product that tells you that unless you wear me, you'll be nobody. You'll be nothing. Think of the vision of life presented to us that the goal of life must be that house, 
that car, that job, that standard of living. It is the polar opposite message. And though we might try to take all of this on board and still call ourselves Christians, we can't have both things. Either our joy and our security and our identity and our purpose is ultimately in Jesus or it comes from our money and stuff. We've got to choose. So another thing, uh, King Jesus in the kingdom of God, he wants us to live lives of love. That means lives that are centred on other people. That's King Jesus. What about King Money? Complete opposite. Money and obsession with money drives our attention right to ourselves. It's my money. Those are my things. Mine, mine, mine. That's the slogan of the kingdom of money. I've been amazed as a parent seeing how quickly my young children uh, develop a concept of exclusive ownership. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else has noticed this. You can't have that. It's, it's my suite. It's, this, you can't play with that. It's my toy. You can't go in that room. It's my room. Now, can you see by its, its very nature, money and also by extension possessions, they drive our attentions to ourselves and away from other people. Let's look at another thing. In the kingdom of God, with King Jesus, he wants us to live our lives humbly. We're created beings. We, we live lives not at the centre of things, but humbly recognising uh, that we're not the centre of the universe. And the, in, in a sense, the ultimate crime in the kingdom of God is pride, is arrogance. The kingdom of money, that thrives on pride and arrogance. Then if you've noticed, but money and possessions quickly move from being things that we need or even things that we could use, I, I suppose, to becoming symbols of our status. They puff us up. We have more stuff, so we automatically think we're better than people who don't have as much stuff. We see someone else who has more stuff and we think we need to catch up with them. We need to, to play that game to prove ourselves. It's all stoking pride. Those who serve king money are really humble. Let's look at one more. In the kingdom of God, King Jesus, he wants us to value this life that we live, but to understand that it's just a small subsection of the reality that there is. God the king, he wants to open our eyes, take off the blinkers to the fact that Reality is so much broader and wider than what we can uh, see and hear and taste and touch and smell. Now, there's more than that. There's this, this other reality where God is. Call it heaven. And it infuses this world with meaning. And ultimately, King Jesus tells us that this reality, heaven, will come down to earth and usher in this entirely new type of life. Our king, King Jesus, he wants to fix our eyes on this bigger version of reality and for us to live as subjects of his, in his kingdom with that reality in mind. What about King Money? Again, the opposite. If you focus on money and possessions, it means to fix your mind very firmly on the here and now and on the material bubble that is instantly accessible to us through our senses. 
These are earthly treasures and they drive our attention to just thinking about the earth in isolation, about what we can experience today or about what we can accumulate during our lifetimes. A servant of money will not have any care for reality as the Bible presents it. A servant of money won't see life as lived in the light of heaven, soaked in the presence of God. No, it's got so attuned to the shine of gold that it can no longer notice or even tune into the frequency of that greater glory of the heavenly reality that even now, if we notice, is invading this reality. They're completely different, completely polar opposite worlds. These kings have totally different agendas. This is not a challenge that can wait until you're a bit older or until you've had a bit of time to have a bit of money and work out what to do with it. No, this is for now. No one can serve two masters for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. So practically, what does this mean for us? What can we do to serve King Jesus and reject King Money? Well, whatever I say in the time we have left uh, will have to be simple. It will have to be a blanket statement. Um, and I recognise that, that something like that, will need, it needs more nuance. There, there'll be different people in different situations. It could be taken a bit too far and all of those sort of things. But actually, I'm not sorry for the fact that I'm going to give you a blanket statement, something quite blunt now as a practical application because actually when Jesus gets practical with teaching like this which he often does uh, in the New Testament he usually gives us one simple bald and usually unqualified thing for us to do to make sure we get our loyalties right here we find one example of it in Luke's version of the teaching on treasures in heaven that we've always already looked at this is what he says Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. Now, I could leave this completely to your conscience uh, in how you apply this. Um, and I guess the primary importance would be to go away and pray about this. Talk to God about it, reflect about it and ask him in your situation what this looks like. And if you're married to uh, chat with your spouse and come up with a plan of what that might look like. Um, with that said, to provide a framework to those conversations and prayers, I just want to finish by uh, giving four uh, pieces of practical advice, I guess, uh, that I could give on, on this topic of what giving away your money uh, might look like. Number one, uh, make your giving systematic and regular. It's good to be spontaneously generous. That's really important. Um but I'd say this kind of teaching, to, to really build this into our lives, um, I have found it really helpful, and I know many others have too, to kind of put this into your straightaway, to, to carve out some of your income and say, no, that straightaway, I'm not even thinking about it, is going away from me every time. Um, the Bible gives a percentage, actually. It's a tenth, uh, often called a tithe, which was used by the people of God in the Old Testament. And if you've not uh, done this before, systematically, regularly, putting aside some money to give, I'd recommend that as a starting place. Give away 10% of your stuff. Just direct debit it. Go. Off you go. Get rid of that. Um, that'd be the first thing. Second thing would be this. Make it your goal in life, not just to up the amount of money that you give away, as you have more money, but to up that percentage regularly throughout your life. 
There's a wonderful adventure, I think, to be had in giving of aiming as you go through your life to be continually more and more generous as your life goes on. Giving away not just more money, but more of a percentage of your money. In other words, to put it in Jesus' way, I guess, make it your goal to become less and less enslaved to money as your life goes on. That's the second one. Thirdly, whenever you receive a gift, and for some of you guys who are a bit younger, this could be like a, a fiver from your gran for your birthday. Uh, for some of others of us, it might be an inheritance, uh, back paid work, bonus, whatever it might be. But whenever you receive a gift, first thing to think of is not, great, this is going there. I'd encourage you first to think, how much of this do I give away? Perhaps an even better question to ask is, God, how much of this am I allowed to keep? That's my third thing. Fourthly and finally, then, don't stall in your giving thinking about who you should give to. Might sound like a funny thing to say, but often we think, oh, who who should be the the most worthy object of my kind generosity and it stalls us and we don't know well this this charity or there's this person who needs it more listen of course we should be wise with our money yes there are some people causes organizations whatever that need your money in some senses more than others but we've got to get this thinking the right way around because so often our thinking on giving is backwards it's the opposite of what jesus says in the bible because often we think that the person who benefits most from giving is the person who receives. We think about that, don't we? That's not true. I really hope that we all use our money and resources to bless other people. I, I hope that that's the case. But let's not be fooled. The person who benefits most from giving is the giver. And I don't need to kind of explain that to you. Jesus says that exact thing in Acts 20, 35. He's quoted as saying, it is better to give than to receive. What? Sounds ridiculous. Why? Well, pulling all this stuff we've seen together uh, from today, what we see is this. We see that when we give our money and stuff away, what we are doing is we are turning our backs on the idol that is most likely to turn us away from serving God. We are taking a decisive step to freeing ourselves from the enslavement of money. And we are demonstrating as practically as we can that we've chosen our master. And no other gods are going to deflect us from our worship, love and devotion to that master, to King Jesus, not even money.